Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. And when he saw the multitudes, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. And opening his mouth, he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. When we approach the Sermon on the Mount, we need to always remind ourselves that the Sermon on the Mount was given to his disciples, and the multitudes were able to overhear what Jesus said to his disciples. That the Sermon on the Mount, these Beatitudes, and a Beatitude is simply a blessing. And it reveals to us, his sermon reveals to us what the Christian life is all about. What does a Christian look like? Well, Jesus tells us. And he tells us not only what the Christian looks like, but the proper way of entering the kingdom of God. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about. This beatitude here tells us quite uh, explicitly, verse 8, because we are at that point in our study, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The ability to see God, would you not say that that is probably the greatest experience any human being could ever have to see the living God? We'll discuss what that means to see the living God. But to see him in a favorable way, not like Hebrews 10 tells us uh, to the unbeliever, it says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, for he is a consuming fire. You don't want to see God that way. But that's not what Jesus is referring to. He's referring to a seeing of God in a blessed way. And we see that as we go through the sermon, that in, among these Beatitudes, there's a continuity among them. I, I hope you can maybe see this continuity. For example, do, do, do you see how it progresses? Poor in spirit, mourning. Meekness, meaning humility, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, being, uh, receive, uh, being merciful, and then experiencing, having experienced mercy. Now, in, in these that we've seen thus far, do you see any kind of self-sufficiency here? No. Do you see any kind of self-righteous spirit? No. Do you see a spirit of pride or of condemnation towards others? No. We've got to realize when Jesus talks about what it means to be his disciple, what it means to enter into the kingdom of God in order to see God, because you're not going to see God unless you're in his kingdom, right? The whole thing revolves around seeing our utter need to seek the Lord. It stresses great earnestness. We saw the last time that I was with you about hungering and thirsting after righteousness. Those that hunger and thirst, the promise of Scripture is you're going to be filled. But you've got to hunger and you've got to thirst. I mean, that is the condition. 
And so we, the, the main thing that Jesus wants to convey to us is that we've got to be aware of our spiritual need. For example, the person who realizes his or her spiritual poverty, who understands their unworthiness before the Lord God, who understands that they are totally in, uh, dependent upon God for everything, uh, the person who shows mercy to other people. And why do, do they show mercy to other people? Because we've received mercy. If we have received mercy, he wants us to show mercy. And keep in mind, who is it are those that are mourning here? The thrust here is mourning over our sins. Uh, mourning over the fact that we are not what we ought to be. It's mourning over the state of our hearts. It's mourning over the fact as we look out in our culture, we, we mourn like Daniel mourned over a nation that had to be judged by God and sent into captivity for 70 years because they transgressed the law of God. He mourned over the sins of the nation. And so we mourn over our own sins. We mourn over the sins of others and that impact that it has Upon us because we live among one another. Who are the pure in heart? I mean, that's the question. Those who see God are only those who are the pure in heart. So we've got to ask, who are the pure in heart? Now, it may seem like a contradiction in terms when I say this. You know who the, uh, fundamentally the pure in heart are? Those who mourn over the impurity of their heart. Those are the pure in heart. Those who recognize their inadequacies, that there is an impurity there that dwells among them in the flesh. See, we must grasp the overwhelming testimony of Scripture that there are none who are righteous, as Romans says. There are none who do good. There are none who seek God, as Romans 3 says. There are none who uh, are pursuing righteousness the way they ought to. In fact, as Isaiah said, there are none who arouse themselves to take hold of thee. And God has delivered them over to the bondage of their iniquities. And so the one who is, in one sense, pure in heart is the one who understands the darkness that was there. The, the darkness that was once there, the still remaining uh, sin, though forgiven. So... In ourselves, we need to recognize there is no one pure in heart in the flesh. Well, let's break down this verse when it talks about the pure in heart. Let's talk about the heart. Jesus says that the heart is of utmost importance. You see, the gospel is all about the heart. And why did Jesus emphasize the heart the way he does? And we're going to see that as we progress in Matthew's gospel account. He emphasizes the heart because in the heart is pure religion. It's internal. It's not merely external like the Pharisees and the scribes whose religion was fundamentally just external. And you see, for them, for the Pharisees, for the scribes, 
their whole concern was on external religious actions. Being sure that they did the right things, they thought. And what were those things? Fasting, tithing, praying, keeping certain traditions. Of course, Jesus had to reprimand them at, at times because there was an instance where the, the Pharisees uh, were critical of Jesus saying, why don't your disciples wash their hands according to the tradition of the elders before they eat? And Jesus turns it on him and says, well, why do you transgress the law of God for the sake of your tradition? See, the emphasis for them was always on appearances, always on how they looked good in the mind of others. Because Jesus says there are those, and we'll come across those passages too in Matthew, where he says there are those who like to be uh, wear robes uh, to set themselves apart from others. They like to be seen praying in public. And they like to, as he said, be called rabbi. And he said, and what did Jesus say? Well, they have their reward. And what he meant by that is they, their reward was they wanted to be seen of men. And Jesus says, so they got their reward. But the implication was you didn't get a reward with God. You got your reward to be seen of men. He says your, your, your religion has to be more than just this external show. Did not God command us to fast? Yes. And to pray? Yes. And to tithe? Yes. He commanded those things. But it's possible to do those things and not have a heart that's been won over to the Lord. And so while these things are obvious areas that a Christian ought to manifest, the Christian must never forget that these external actions that he's called us to do apart from the heart being engaged, are meaningless. And from the heart, we must love God. From the heart, we must love our neighbor as ourselves. From the heart. You know, in the Bible, the Bible portrays the heart as the central aspect of a person's being. Sometimes people uh, refer to it, think of it's just emotions and that uh, distinct from the mind and from the will. Sometimes you get that impression from the scriptures. But ultimately, the heart engages every facet of a human being, the way we think. And on the basis of what we think and what we value, our heart, then we engage in certain actions of the will. And so, but we can say this, the heart is what we really are like. That's the real us. See, we can, we can give a facade before people. We can look good and not be commended by the Lord. So it's not about necessarily looking good. It's about having a heart that is done won over by the Lord. After all, the scripture says in Proverbs 4.23, it says that we are to diligently watch over our heart, for from it flows the issues of life. I mean, Jesus uh, definitely implies this when we get to Matthew chapter 11 and 15. He talks about that out of the heart comes all the evil actions. 
And then Jesus says the mouth speaks from that which fills the heart. And so those uh, what we say before others um, reveals the condition of our hearts. And that's why I've said true religion is a religion of the heart primarily. So Jesus <clears throat> says that the heart essentially is the essence of mankind. And the problem <clears throat> is that sometimes, while the Bible does put a premium on sound doctrine, because you can go through the Scriptures and in Timothy, and you're going to see where it talks about the importance of sound doctrine. But let me tell you this. <clears throat> sound doctrine isn't just an intellectual comprehension. And when we're talking about the heart, we're going to need to understand that sound doctrine is that which involves the heart. In other words, it is possible to have a lot of intellectual knowledge of the Bible and not have your heart engaged. I know, unfortunately, I know of men who have an exceptional exceptional knowledge of biblical facts. But I don't think they're genuine Christians. Why would I say that? You know, for the longest time, I wondered, how is it that a person can understand a lot of biblical facts, see the rational connection of those facts in a way that sometimes other people don't see them, and did not really know the Lord Jesus. And then the Federal Vision came along where these kind of men denied justification by faith alone. Well, the Bible says, I mean, that's, that's so important that Paul says, if you don't believe that, in Galatians 1, he says, you have preached another gospel and you are anathema before God. So it is possible to have a lot of head knowledge of the Bible. You could win the Bible Bowl. <laughs> but that doesn't mean you're a Christian. Because the heart may not be engaged. Now, the gospel comes to us. It doesn't just come to us appealing to the heart. I mean, the great preacher of the 20th century, uh, the English preacher, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said you've got to be careful, uh, preachers, how you preach. He says, don't just bombard people uh, with emotions, you got uh, people need to intellectually comprehend the scriptures, but you comprehend the scriptures so that the heart will be engaged. Okay, that it's not just left there with all this intellectual knowledge of the Bible. So the heart represents the person in their totality. Now Jesus said, now what did he say in this beatitude? He says that the pure in heart will see God. And so we have to say that the gospel starts with the heart. If there are problems in life, it will always go back to the heart, to the condition of a person's heart. Look, for example, so we're, so we're talking about the pure in heart will see God. Turn with me to Psalm 24. Look at... Um, Look at verses 3 through 5. Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? And who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. 
who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. He shall receive a blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Now let's put this, this psalm into proper perspective. Who's going to ascend to the, the, the hill of the Lord and see the holiness of God? Those with a pure heart. Now, brethren, this is not works righteousness. One may get the impression that it might be works righteousness, but you see, I can't make my heart pure. You can't make your heart pure. You can't make your heart pure. The only one that can make your heart pure is God, the Holy Spirit. And so, let's understand this purity of the heart that Jesus demands and that will allow someone to see the Lord is something that the Lord has to do, ultimately. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. Look at verses 30 to 33. What then shall we say? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The Jews here, Paul says, were making the ability to be with God, to see God based upon their own human efforts, upon keeping the law. And he said, what happened? They failed. They failed. Miserably. But who who won? Christ. The Gentiles. Who by faith accepted Jesus, who what? Keeps the law for us. Who paid the penalty of our transgressions for us. They are the ones who won the victory. They are the ones who get to see God. They are the ones who are pure in heart. Who do not pursue it as if it were by works. And so we see, and and, and is this not, as I've already alluded to in the Sermon on the Mount, you've got to be poor in spirit, right? Well, to be poor in spirit means to have this humble attitude and to recognize my insufficiency. That, that's where it begins. A heart that recognizes, I'm not going to make it on my own. And again, that great story of the, of the publican and the, ta- uh, and the Pharisee, who said he tithed and, and that he fasted and all this, but he was thanking God he wasn't like that low-down tax collector there, and yet the tax collector is begging for the mercy of God. Jesus says, who went away justified? The one who was mourning over his sin. The one who was poor in spirit. That's the one who went away justified. Not the self-righteous person. And so we see that we can't approach Christ with this mentality of doing something to earn it. 
we've got to recognize that our hearts are being held captive by the evil one and being held captive by our sins. You know, Jeremiah said it this way. Jeremiah said in Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 23, here's what Jeremiah said. Can the uh, Ethiopian change his skin? Can the leopard change his spots? Then you also can, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? That's a rhetorical question, and the answer should be, well, no. You can't, the, the leopard can't change its spots, so, you know, I, I want to look something else. It can't do it. It's, it's its nature to be this way. And so, as Jeremiah says, apart from the human heart being regenerated, we're going to remain in a, in a state of great animosity before God. Remember, we're talking about who are the pure in heart. Turn with me to Ezekiel 36. We've looked at this numerous times, but it's pertinent to our message today. Ezekiel 36, beginning at verse 24 through verse 27. For I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe all my ordinances. Need I remind you? How many times is that personal pronoun I used there? And who is the I but God? God says, I'm the one who's going to do all this. I mean, you're in captivity because Ezekiel was the prophet in captivity. And they had lost all hope. The scripture made it clear that Israel had lost all hope when they saw Jerusalem decimated, when they saw the great temple of Solomon reduced to rubble, when they saw all these people killed and then those that were left alive carried off into Babylon. They had lost all hope. But God says, I, I will do this. I'll bring you back. I'll cleanse you. I'll sprinkle clean water on you. I'll change your heart. I'll take that bad heart of stone out and give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to cause you to walk in my statutes. You know who the pure in heart are? Those who have had their heart regenerated by the power of the living God. Those are the pure in heart. See, the heart must be cleansed. That, that stony heart's got to be removed. And it's going to be blunt. If you know certain things to be true about God, and you're wondering about your relationship to Christ, or you may not have ever personally embraced Jesus as Lord and Savior, I say, what, what is stopping you? What is stopping you? Today is the day of salvation. The pure in heart will see God. But only the pure in heart will see Him. And from this regenerated heart that, that the Holy Spirit does, comes all of the necessary fruit 
that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount. From this life of being justified by faith in Jesus comes all the godly fruit that bears testimony that something has happened. You know, Hebrews 12, 14 does say, Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see God. You and I can't see God without holiness of life. Now, that doesn't mean, again, I want you to understand the connection. It's not a self-effort deal. It's the fact that I run to Jesus knowing that I am inadequate, wanting God to show mercy to me, and then God supernaturally, well, let's put it this way. You won't go running to Jesus with that attitude unless... (laughs) Unless God's already regenerated that heart, you know. I don't necessarily believe, you know, I don't ask people to come forward, you know, to receive Christ. You don't have to do that. Can people become Christians that way? Yeah, but I've always said this. In that context, and there are some people where that works, they would never get out out of their seats. If it's a genuine thing, if it is genuine, and there are some that are genuine, They would never get out of their seats, would they, unless the Holy Spirit had convicted them. (laughs) And therefore, if someone says, we need to give your life to Jesus, okay, I want to do that. You see, once the heart has been transformed, then faith comes. And then once, once that faith comes, we are justified, and then... The Spirit begins to mold us into the likeness of Christ. Turn with me to Revelation 21. Look at verse 27. Talking about those who are going to see God, well, being His presence. And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Yes, Jesus says, blessed are the pure in heart. They will see God. Those who are practicing sin, which is what this is referring to, like 1 John chapter 3 says, those who practice sin are not born of God. And that's why 1 John says it's obvious who are those who have been born of God and those who have it. He says, if you're born of God, you will not live in sin. Now, that doesn't mean that we're not going to commit sin from time to time, but there is a difference of falling into sin and living a life of outright rebellion against God. And so a Christian is someone who doesn't pursue holiness of life in their own strength. No, they pursue holiness out of a heart that wants to do it. Turn with me to to Romans 6. Look at verses 20 to 23. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God... 
you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what we can say that the pure in heart are? Those who keep the first and greatest commandment that Jesus said. What was the first and greatest commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That is the first and foremost commandment. And that is what the pure in heart are. The pure in heart are those who love the Lord Jesus with every fiber of their being. That's the pure in heart. The pure in heart are those who are striving after holiness of life. We know we're sinners. We know that we can fall. But we beg God to give us strength. Those are the pure in heart. They're the ones who keep running to the Lord to find mercy. They're the ones who keep running to the Lord to find grace and help of time of need that the Bible talks about. Those are the pure in heart. Is that true of you? Are you the pure in heart? Is Jesus the most important thing to you? Really? Is being in the very presence of the Lord your greatest desire? Do you ever think about heaven that much? Do you ever think about the new heavens and new earth? How frequently do you think about it? Is it your greatest hope in life to be in that presence? And then, what does it really mean to see God? Now, we know that God doesn't have a body like men. You know, the catechism says that, right? He's not flesh and blood. So when it says the pure in heart will see God, it's like this. Philip, the apostle, once asked Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father. And what was Jesus' response to Philip? He said, well, Philip, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How then do you say, show us the Father? He was saying to Philip, you have seen God. Everything that I have said to you, everything that uh, the character that you've seen about me, you've seen God. You've seen the Father. Turn with me to 1 John 3. 1 John 3 and look at verses 1 and 2. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him just as he is. Now, Jesus has a body. And we will see him that, but that's not the, the, the main thrust of this passage. We shall see him as he is. Now, Jesus has a resurrected body. On that day, you and I as a Christian, we will have a resurrected body. So we will, a resurrected body, will see a resurrected body, the Lord Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. The essence of it is, when you and I see the Lord Jesus face to face, guess what? 
There will be no ounce of sin in your life at all. At all. You will see the Lord of glory with a perfect soul in righteousness, no sin at all. Now, I cannot fathom that being a sinner. I I, I don't know what it's like to be perfect because I'm not perfect. But I know what the Scripture says. But I can long for that day. Can't you long for that day? Can't you long for that day? To see Jesus with a perfect mind, a perfect heart. The pure in heart will see God. But you're not going to get there unless you divest yourself of all self-righteousness and run to Christ for mercy. Yes, we will see Him as He is. The glorious Jesus. We will be perfected in righteousness. But the one who perfected us was Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit. Let me end with 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Turn to 2 Corinthians 3. And let me read verses 4 through 18. And such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, Not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how shall the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory... Much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory on account of the glory that surpasses it. For that which fades away was with glory much more, that which remains is in glory. Having therefore such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech and are not as Moses who used to put a veil over his face, that the sons of Israel might not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day, at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because it is removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. But whenever a man turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. As a Christian, you and I are being transformed from glory unto glory until that great day when we breathe our last and our souls are perfected immediately. And on that great day when Jesus comes back and he raises our bodies that may have been in the dust 10,000 years, who knows? We shall see him as he is. We shall see the glory of God. Ultimately, 
that your great hope? I, I trust that it is. But if there are any doubts as to where you stand with Christ, just, just settle it today. Run to Jesus. Trust in Him. Settle it. Let's ask for His, for his glory, His grace to be upon us. Let's pray.